Augustine said, He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms it is far off, nor is it he who says it is near. But it says, he says, It is he who, whether it be far off or near, awaits it with a sincere faith, a steadfast hope, and a fervent love. C.S. Lewis said that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. You know, you don't have to look very far to see that the world is in a state of great turmoil. We're looking at disorder and chaos and, and confusion. And you know, for many of those across the world, they have been in a state of turmoil for decades or longer. It's nothing new to them. But this turmoil has now come on the radar of the Western world due to the recent uncovering or, or the unveiling of the wickedness that we see in our country. We are seeing the rise of the Antichrist spirit, no doubt. The evil one is playing his hand and God is allowing him to be exposed so that he can be hung on his own gallows. We have to understand, though, that God is always calculating, infinitely calculating, calculations that are infinite in a fraction of a time, knowing the thoughts, knowing the plans, knowing the motives, knowing the schemes of every creature created, both seen and unseen, at any given moment. God is not taken by surprise. He is working out His plans in His church and against the rebellious forces simultaneously. He's parallel processing. There are sinister forces at work, but only God's purposes will prevail. We see this captured most poignantly in uh, Psalms 2, where the uh, writer says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How many of you know that's what we're seeing today? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now these are strong words from our God, who, by the way, is in control. He is supremely sovereign over all he's created. A God who is not affected by the schemes of man, a God whose purposes will come to pass. Are we living in the end of the age? Are we living in the time of birth pains as described by Jesus in Matthew 24? You know, we probably can't answer that, that question with complete certainty. 
However, if we are not in birth pangs, then we are most definitely in Braxton Hicks. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what Braxton Hicks are, they're a precursor to the real con contractions and birth pains that come along. And I'd advise you to talk to my wife about it after having 10 kids. She's kind of an expert in this. And I've learned a little bit being on the sidelines. You know, for many of us, we can sense the heaviness of the spiritual atmosphere. It's tangible. You can, you can sense the rise of the Antichrist spirit. It reminds me of the prophecy in the book of Daniel where he's speaking of the Antichrist or the beast, and he says that it was granted power to him to overwhelm, to, to overcome, to wear down the saints. This has never felt so real as it does today. But no matter how great the struggle feels, no matter how overwhelming it is, we have to realize that God is most definitely working out His purposes in a most beautiful way. You see, God has, has a way of using pressure and trials to forge His church into what it was called to be. God is ultimately preparing His bride for His return. And He is coming for a church that is what? It is spotless and it is without blemish. You know, unfortunately and fortunately for His church, that's us, this refinement has come about through trials. It has to come about through trials and persecution. We can read throughout the scriptures of the persecution and trials of the early church. But what did Peter and John and Paul tell the church who were experiencing these trials? They were always encouraging them to allow these trials to work out the desired result for this development of faith and perseverance within them. In fact, Jesus said that we should suffer persecution and that we would suffer persecution. He promised us we would suffer persecution because we bear His name. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines us so that we can share in His holiness. So in other words, we can be uh, sacred space or other than. We can be set apart. We can share in His divine nature as we allow Him to forge us through His trials and discipline in our lives. And you know what? It's ultimately for our good and for His glory. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not here trying to talk doom and gloom to you. In fact, I really think our finest hour is coming. His church is going to become more and more radiant, getting brighter and brighter. But I do believe that this will happen in the backdrop of increased wickedness and chaos in our world. The wicked will get more wicked and the righteous will become more righteous. But we have to realize that for the church to become brighter and brighter, we have to go through a process of trials and discipline, as I mentioned. Have you ever heard the concept of being taught, caught, and wrought? You see, in the kingdom, for a truth to become real to your conscience, you have to be taught at first. But then it has to be caught by you. So you may have experienced this when you feel so, like uh, someone is articulating your very feelings about a subject and you, you catch the vision from what they say. But for the truth to be truly lived out in your life, it has to be wrought. In other words, shaped or, or fashioned or formed by the Holy Spirit in your life. My purpose this morning is to encourage the church. Not only the local expression of upcountry that we have here, but the corporate body of believers, the ecclesia at large, the, the global body of Christ. We have to walk in a certain mentality. 
We have to have a certain vision of the end game as we see proclaimed in Revelation to really to be able to navigate these days ahead as his church. We have to have a plumb line or, or a horizon that we look out to so that we can withstand the pressure so that we can be formed into what God wants for his church. I believe this mindset, this mentality, this vision was captured by the early church and it needs to be recaptured. It needs to be recalibrated for the church today. What I'm talking about is the Maranatha mindset, the Maranatha vision. Okay, so you ask, well, what is the Maranatha vision or mindset? Many of you probably heard this term, no doubt, in the 80s and 90s when you heard of the praise bands, Maranatha, and you, you probably heard of ministries and churches named after that. But actually, this word, Maranatha, is explicitly used in one place in Scripture, and that's 1 Corinthians 16.22. However, it has been implied through many prophetic Scriptures throughout the New Testament, similar to the, the words Hosanna or Hallelujah or Amen, which are transliterated Hebrew words, Maranatha is a transliterated Aramaic word which, which has one of three meanings. And by the way, these meanings are not determined by how you write it, but more so how you say it, how you pronounce it. So in other words, if you pronounce it one way, it can mean our Lord has come. In other words, you're proclaiming a historic fact. Amen. If you pronounce it another way, it could mean, our Lord, come. So you're proclaiming that the Lord's coming is a future event. It's something you're looking forward to. If you pronounce it yet another way with a certain emphasis, it becomes an aggressive, an intercessory, begging, meaning, oh, Lord, come, as if crying out and begging for help. You see, Maranatha became the greeting of the early church as the church became more and more Gentile. Because at the beginning, the, the church was actually very Jewish. So as a Jew greeting a brother, whether you believe the same thing or not, you would approach each other and you'd say, Shalom, Shalom. However, when the church started becoming more and more Gentile, they didn't really greet each other with Shalom anymore. They started using Maranatha. So think of it. What's a way we could speak identity with each other when passing or when walking on the street when you see a brother or sister? Well, what, what do you say? Well, the church at that time adopted Maranatha as their anthem, as their greeting, as, as their baseline identity for simple unity. It also became the word of encouragement as, as they were being persecuted. It represented a common call and a common goal that they shared. You know, Maranatha has always been foundational to the early church, and it may even be more specifically foundational to the generation of the church that's going to usher in our Lord Jesus. So why the Maranatha cry? Because the Maranatha cry is intricately tied to the end of all things. The end of the ages, the, the consummation of all things. In other words, it has great eschatological that's a big word meaning things concerning the end of the age, implications for the church because it is ultimately tied and connected to the return of our King Jesus. So when you know the end game, when you know the end goal, it brings into greater clarity where you are now and where you're headed. It also answers the why of where you're going. It gives us the mindset to persevere, to truly be able to live solely focused on His kingdom. This is not escapism. 
If we just, we're not saying just sit around and, and wait for his return. No, this is a rallying cry. Lord, what is your will for my life? What is your will and why did you place me at this time in history? And then when you find out or as you walk in it, then do it. Be obedient. We see this mindset portrayed in Revelations 12, 11, where John is describing the saints. And he says, and they, meaning the saints, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now listen to this. For they loved not their lives unto death. That's not so popular sounding, is it? To be clear, only a Maranatha mindset could think this way. To not love his life, his or her life unto death. Paul carried this mindset, and so did all the apostles. You see, when you have a mindset to follow Christ to the death, you really don't walk with any distractions in this world anymore. You're not attracted by this world. Well, you may think that Maranatha actually started in the church age, as I just mentioned in 1 Corinthians, and maybe the actual word or the, or the greeting did. However, it actually originates from ancient times. It, it originates way before Christ inaugurated the kingdom on earth. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, it's been the cry of all creation since the fall. Paul says in Romans 8, when speaking about our adoptions as sons and daughters and, and about suffering and about hope, that creation and even ourselves carry this groaning, this cry for the restoration of all things. We read in Romans 8, 19 through 23, he says, For the creation waits with what? With eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. So this groaning, this groaning we're speaking about expresses a deep, a deep frustration, a deep longing, a, a deep aching, a deep yearning for Jesus' return. When he will restore and when he will liberate all of creation from the evil and from the death and the decay. Ephesians 5 actually provides a theological anchor to the Garden of Eden, and in this Maranatha mindset we're talking about. This section and chapter in Ephesians comes right after Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. And he's giving specific examples of what this looks like, including submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He then segues to applying this to husbands and wives. And during the course of his reasoning, Paul lays out an eschatological vision, a, a, a Maranatha vision of Jesus presenting the church, what in its splendor, as a bride without spot or wrinkle to himself. And we read in Ephesians 5, 25 through 26, and he says, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
This is the Maranatha church. This is the church at the end of the age. Paul then connects the mystery of Christ's relationship with the church as his own body to the husband's relationship with his wife, as we see continuing in verse 28 through 32. It says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because, when we, because we are actually members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what does it say in 32? Paul says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in describing this mystery in verse 31 and 32 of this passage, Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24 which takes our minds back to the Garden of Eden. So Paul is theologically rooting and connecting the view of the Maranatha end-time church in its splendor with Adam and Eve in the Garden. In doing this, Paul sets our minds back in the Garden with Adam and Eve, and, and really he points us back to their great clash, their catastrophic conflict with the serpent. This initial conflict is what theologians commonly refer to as the fall. This interaction between Adam and Eve and Satan would become the core, foundational, historical context for understanding all of redemptive history, for understanding all of what the gospel is, and for understanding the identity and the purpose of what the church is and what Jesus actually came to do. This is nothing new. We all know and understand this already. However, there are some very interesting insights that we can glean from this connection as it concerns the Maranatha cry. So, I want to take your mind back to the garden. I want you to imagine with me Adam and Eve having unbroken, unfettered access and fellowship with God, our Creator. The God of the universe who created all things and holds together all things as we see in Colossians 1, the God that as Elihu cried out in the book of Job that if he should withdraw his spirit and his breath, that all creation would return to dust, Job 34. So in this pre-fallen state of relationship, the scriptures also describe Adam and Eve as what? As being naked and unashamed. We see in Genesis 2.25. What an incredible place to be. You know, some synonyms for naked are completely exposed, <laughs> totally vulnerable, not covered up, not hidden, totally known by yourself and totally known by everyone around you. Are you getting the idea? It was a transparent relationship, knowing and being known, nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. Dalton Thomas says that this is the defining reality of what we were created for ultimately, which is a profoundly significant statement concerning the church and its splendor at the end of times. Because if God's intention is to restore what was established in the garden, such as it is His intention eschatologically, it means that the end game to God's eschatological purposes is the restoration to nakedness and unashamedness. The destruction and the annihilation of shame and the return to being fully known, fully exposed, and nothing covered, nothing hidden, completely, 
safe before the eyes of those around you and the eyes of the one who created you. So now let's talk about the impact of that fall. The impact of this great clash with Satan, the, the evil one, the devil, the, our arch enemy through the ages. We, we won't talk about the implications of what it meant to choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life. Suffice it to say that after they fell, after the clash with Satan, we see in the scriptures in Genesis 3, 7 that it says, Then the eyes of both were open, and then they knew that they were naked. They lost the innocence and the unbroken fellowship that they had had before the fall. This is significant because as we read in Acts 3.21, when Jesus returns, He will restore all things. Let's read in verse 21. It says, Whom, meaning Jesus, heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. So we know that being naked and not ashamed signifies the original state or the, or the condition of humankind before the fall. We know that this original state is part of what he was, he's restoring when he returns. Now let's take our mind to the punishment meted out by God. And specifically, I want to take you to the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, when God is speaking judgment to Satan. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Adam and Eve are now experiencing a great loss, a great sorrow, a, a, a really a new exposure to the wrath of God. Their innocence is shattered. They realize that they, what they've lost, and they realize that they lost the unbroken fellowship with God. They are now feeling the terror of shame and remorse for the very first time. This is a new feeling to them. It's totally foreign to them. But a hope, a hope was placed in their hearts as they hear God prophesy that one of their offspring, one of their seed, would crush and would destroy Satan. This is one of the most foundational prophecies of the coming of our Messiah. Now, I want you to, to temporarily erase all your knowledge of what happened before the fall, if you can do that for me. Place yourselves again in Adam and Eve's shoes, their state of mind. Put yourselves in the narrative at, at this point of the story. You don't know anything that happens from this point forward. You don't know about the flood. You don't know about the prophets. You don't know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't know about the exodus. You don't know about John the Baptist, and you certainly don't know that Jesus is going to come. All you know is that you've been walking with God in unbroken fellowship and communion, and now that's been shattered because of the clash with the evil one. So by implications of the judgment to Satan, they know that a Savior would not come to just necessarily bleed, but that a deliverer would come to destroy to destroy or to crush the work of the evil one and to execute judgment on his head. It's interesting to note that on an eschatological level, everything in the climatic moments of the book of Revelation and, and the other apocalyptic literature speak about a return to the garden. This is a crucial understanding we need to have to properly calibrate our understanding of eschatology. 
Eschatology is about the return to the garden. It's the restoration of what was lost in Eden. This is really the heart of the Maranatha vision that I'm speaking about. So now we're in Genesis 4, and, and we see that Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Can you imagine what they were thinking? They just had their first child. They may have been thinking this could be the one that God spoke about. The one that will destroy and crush the head of Satan who causes such sorrow and such pain on earth. Well, then they had Abel. Maybe this is the one. But as the boys grew into men, they soon realized that it would be neither one. And to their horror, Cain kills Abel. Cain is now disqualified because of his blood guilt, and Abel doesn't even exist any longer. What is even more frightening is that the one that your seed is supposed to crush is the one who caused the division between the brothers and caused him to kill the other, the evil one, the devil. So now you can begin to sense the groaning. You can sense the longing, the yearning, the, the Maranatha cry to begin to be stirred up within them. Not only in Adam and Eve, but in all who would have heard about the prophecy that Adam and Eve had told them. No doubt, Adam and Eve would have told them about the unbroken fellowship with God and the clash with Satan before the fall. They would have told them about the hope for humanity through a promised seed that all, not all was lost. We know from there that more and more children were born and more and more children were disqualified to be the seed that would crush Satan. Then in Genesis 4.25, it says that Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring to play in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Then it says Seth had a child and called him Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, Maranatha, come Lord. This is the groaning and the yearning in them. And it became the seedbed and the setting that would grow into the Maranatha cry. This is the groaning and longing throughout the ages. This is the groaning and longing of the early church. And this should be the groaning and the longing of the modern day church where we are today. We must call on the name of the Lord to cry out Maranatha if we want to see the day of reckoning come, the longing for the coming of the Lord. So what does the Maranatha church look like in the big, uh, the big picture? What does the Maranatha vision look like for the church? What is the ultimate end game in time and eternity? In other words, where's all this going? In Ephesians 4, we get an incredible high-level Big picture view of the Maranatha church in its purest form. You see, it's the global church walking in unity and maturity, crying out together, Maranatha, until he comes. Currently, the church is divided globally by theological traditions and other periphery concerns, but there is coming a day where the church will walk in true unity and splendor. I believe this unity and this splendor, this, this radiance of the church, will be triggered by persecution and tribulation. In fact, if you look through history, the church has always thrived in times of persecution and tribulation. 
If we read through the prophetic scriptures describing the church at the end of the age, she is deeply unified in her vision and in her message. We see this most clearly in how Ephesians 4 describes what it looks like for this mature church to walk in unity in, in its diverse expressions of giftings and functions and callings. This isn't a church that is experiencing shallow unity where we're entering into transactional relationships or, or transactional unity with one another. No, it's going to be a selfless, a Christ-like, love-wrought unity that looks more like Jesus' oneness with the Father than it does a shallow ecumenical unity. The only unity that will endure. Shallow unity will not endure the days of pressure and persecution. This is the only unity that will endure, the unity that is wrought by the Holy Spirit and rooted in the gospel itself. This is why the Maranatha vision is so essential and so helpful and so powerful in unifying and maturing the church because it extracts the essentials and brings everything into focus. Right now, brothers and sisters are divided over peripheral issues that, that really don't matter. I mean, the issues do matter, and, and where you land on secondary issues do matter to a degree, but not in the days leading up to the Antichrist. We may have differing opinions on these various issues, but the thing is, in wartime, you don't have the luxury of pontificating over those things in a way that bears no consequence. Right now, you can go online and watch people debate theology, but unto what? It's just to be right. It's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not to prepare us. The Maranatha crime to the global body is get your priorities right and unify around the main things. This is seen in highly persecuted churches around the world as we look at Iran and China and, and India even, where the saints are actually dying for their faith. The simplicity of their unity, the reason the basis of their unity is so strong and enduring is because the gospel they hold is so simple. We should ask when we meet a brother or sister, do you believe that Jesus came to earth as a son of God and died for our sins and was raised again? Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? Well, good, then we're brothers and sisters, Maranatha. The Maranatha message producing this unity Producing this maturity is what will be such a contributing factor to the church being clothed in splendor when the Lord returns. This Maranatha vision creates a longing which produces an endurance which is needed for the church to walk into its destiny. This Maranatha vision should affect the way we see and we understand everything else. This is the word of the Lord to our generation and it is intricately tied to the return of our King. Maranatha is tied to the ultimate destruction and dismantling of the powers of the air and the wicked. We do await a king. There really is a kingdom that will be manifest when he comes. Although our king suffered and died as a lamb, he will return as a lion with his robe dipped in blood, unleashing wrath on the ungodly as we see in Revelations 5-16. through do you realize that Jesus will be the one to actually release the seals of the scroll to trigger the judgment and the wrath on earth? Do you realize that between the judgments and the wrath released that half of the earth's population will be destroyed? 
So to put this in perspective, if the Earth's population is at that time somewhere between 7 to 10 billion souls, then half of that, 3.5 to 5 billion souls, will be utterly destroyed. Satan will be truly crushed. Our king is coming. Revelations 19, 11 through 21 is a profound picture of our coming king. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's the Maranatha church, were following him on white horses. From, this, from his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of the God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into, alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth, who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds gorged with their flesh. Wow! When we see, when we say, that we are kingdom-minded, do we really understand that it's truly a kingdom with a fierce king? That there truly is a king that will return? We need to recalibrate our minds to the Maranatha vision. This will bring all things into perspective. John Piper asks, Does your mind return frequently to the truth of Christ's appearing? When your mind turns to the truth of His appearing, does your heart want it? Is there an eagerness to see Him? Do you pray for His coming? Maranatha prayed the early church, Come, Lord Jesus. We should long, we should yearn, and we should ache, and we should cry out for our Lord to come back. Our heart and our prayer should reverberate the last words of Scripture as we see in Revelations 22. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Spirit and the Bride say, What? Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha.
I'm not trying to be heavy here, guys, but we don't have to look very far to see where we're at. And I believe as God is shaping His church for this day, He's shaping us to have a, a direct, a laser focus on Him. This was the cry through the ages. Let's not forget what we're about. It's easy in our Western culture to forget what everything's about. But the church is His bride being made ready. Amen. Let's pray.